thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. 25 minutes to 10 o'clock. We're just taking, you know, toning down the temperature a bit. I'm overwhelmed by your calls and your SMSs about uh, the xenophobia, the looting, the uh, small businesses and opportunities. We'll give you a chance just after 10 o'clock. But right now, can we just satisfy our curiosity about the world in which we live with the Naked Scientist? Chris, good morning. Good morning. Lovely to chat to you. Okay, let's talk about this jet lag pill. I'm very, very interested, especially those people who travel overseas and you've got business meetings or you've got to run a marathon the next day. How can we fool the body into thinking it is the right time of day? Well, the reason that we're slaves to the rhythm, which is what Grace Jones was telling us for many years, <laughs> uh, is because uh, in your brain you have a cluster of cells which are nerve cells ticking away with a clock. And that clock is a genetic clock. They have a little cycle of genes that turn on and turn off. And each gene, when it turns on, influences the action of the next gene in the sequence, like a genetic domino effect. And it goes around taking about 24 hours to do that. And as the genetic clock ticks, it changes the activity of the nerve cell. And this nerve cell then communicates with other nerve cells in its local network. And the effect of that is to have a a series of, of activity which alters across a day. And this is how the body keeps time. And those nerve cells are connected to other parts of the brain to influence how active the brain is. They're also connected to your pituitary gland through your hypothalamus. And that produces hormones that go around in your bloodstream to change the clock and set the clock, which is also running in every single one of the cells in your body. So every part of your body is quite literally keeping time. And when you change time zones and you fly uh, intercontinentally, then you uh, are actually changing the exposure to when it's light and dark to your body. But physiologically, your body still thinks it's where you started Mm. in your home country. And as a result, there's a disparity between what time your body thinks it is and what time it really is. And because as the clock ticks round, it changes the activity of your cells and uh, that you gear up your metabolism to be more or less active at different times of the day, there is this big mismatch between how active your body thinks it needs to be and how much energy it's making and all the staff have come to work ready to, to get on the production line, for example, and there isn't any work coming along the production line. So everyone stands there going, what are we going to do? Another day, uh, when you're, you, well, none, none of the staff have mm. come to work, there's loads of work on the production line, and of course everyone feels stressed and overworked, and that's what jet lag is. And the whole point of trying to invent tablets and pills which can shift the body clock is to influence this process so that you can respond to light uh, which is which what sets your body clock more abruptly and Mm. in the back of your eye are some tiny cells which uh, communicate with your brain and they tell your your body clock what time of day it is and they're under the influence of of a daylight signal which says hey it's morning time set the time in your own internal clock and other signals coming from around the body can 
similarly tweak the clock. And the idea of making pills for jet lag is that there are some hormones that influence the time of the clock, and yeah. we can pop a pill and shift the clock round so that people will then be able to function as though it's the right time of day. So it, it speeds up the resetting process. There are other ways of doing it, and exposing yourself to bright light at certain times of the day for a certain period of time also works. But um, Viagra, it turns out, is also quite good at resetting the body <laughs> clock, although we may, may want to speculate later as to exactly why. <laughs> All right, uh, Chris, now this shellfish, I never thought that there would be shellfish so conniving. Uh, there is a beautiful story out this week. Okay. It is in um, PNAS, and it's by researchers in a number of countries, but the lead author on the paper is Helena Safavi Hamami, who's a researcher at Utah University. And the work that they're publishing is the first example, we think, of insulin the hormone which affects your blood sugar. It's used in the body to put your blood sugar down, not just in humans, but in many, many animals. It's the first example of this being used as a weapon or a tool for hunting. They've been looking at cone snails. These are big animals. They're, they're up to 20 or 30 centimetres across these shells, some of them. Very beautiful. But they're also the most venomous creatures in the whole world. And the, the way in which many of them hunt is to deploy their tongue out under the sand and wiggle it around so it looks like a worm. Then a fish comes along and the cone snail grabs the fish and spears it with a little neurotoxin-laced harpoon, which immediately or almost instantly mm. immobilises the fish and the, the shell, the cone snail, eats it. But this paper, what they've done is to look at two different species of cone snail. One's called Conus geographus and the other one is called Conus tulipa. Mm. And these ones don't hunt like that. They actually have the most enormous mouth. They're like the Mick Jaggers of the shellfish world. And they can extend this mouth from out of their shell, and it's mm. like a giant mushroom turned upside down coming out of the shell, and they plonk it down on top of things they want to eat and just engulf them and then draw them in. thing is, it's quite a slow and ponderous process. So how does a, a swift uh, little fish end up being drawn into this giant mouth? Well, this is where this incredible uh, a, a case of um, chemical warfare comes in. The cone snail releases into the water a cocktail of chemicals. It's a sort of cloud which drifts through the water called yeah. Nirvana Cabal. This is laced with neurotoxins and it seeps into all the little crevices in the reefs where the fish it wants to eat might be hiding. And in there is this, is this insulin that it also makes. And the effect of this is to put the blood sugar of the fish right down. So the fish are effectively immobilised. They can't go anywhere. And uh, so they just fall out of the reef uh, hole they were hiding in and the cone snail just sort of ponderously comes over and eats them. And it's the first example, actually, of, some, of, uh, of someone or something using insulin in this way to, to aid and abet hunting. But there might be a human benefit, too, because it's the smallest form of insulin anyone's ever discovered. Hmm, very interesting. All right, our lines are open for you, 021-446-0567 or double one double eight three zero seven zero two. Um Anton in Cape Town. Hi there, Rudy. Hi, Chris. Yes, hello. Um, I wanted to know, how are corrugations on dirt roads formed, you know, the small little bumps. Hello, Anton. I know, they're an absolute nightmare, aren't they? Uh, and they can literally shake your vehicle to pieces, and they're a ubiquitous phenomenon. doesn't matter if you're driving around in South Africa, other bits of Africa, Australia. Uh, they're, they're a bone-shaking hell. And when mm. I first encountered them, I, I thought, because they're, they're able to make my car uh, bounce around so much, I thought they must be really tough, hard things. So I stopped the car and got out and, and went and kicked one in frustration. And, of course, it's just a little pile of sand, isn't it? And the reason it happens is because of the shock 
absorbers on the vehicle. Now, as you drive down the road, most people are going to drive down these roads at a certain speed. So if you hit a little bump in the road, this is going to make the car bounce up a little bit, and it's got shock absorbers or springs, and these are going to make the car bounce up and down on its journey down the road for a little while afterwards. And because the car is going up and down, because it's already had a, a little bump in the road, and most cars weigh about the same, and most shock absorbers are about the same, this means that the simple harmonic motion, in other words, the up and down motion, uh, as the shock absorbers damp the up and down motion, is going to last for about the same amount of time in pretty much all vehicles going down the road. And this means that at certain points down the road after that initial bump, the wheels are going to feel a bigger force down on the road surface because the vehicle is bouncing downwards and then a bit later a force upwards so the vehicle weighs a little bit less. And this has the effect of pushing or heaping up the dirt in that very rhythmic way. And as successive cars come along, each of them hits this bump which is getting bigger and they then start to bounce in the same way and they also then heap up more dirt further down the road as the car bounces up and down. And so it is a self-fulfilling prophecy that it's a bit like a mogul field when you go skiing. The more that, that cars go along it, the more dirt they heap up in these various points coinciding with the vehicle bouncing up and down and you get this system of corrugations very, very quickly. And the way to solve it, if you dare, is <laughs> to actually not slow down but speed up. Because if you can actually go faster than the speed that the average person was going down that road, then actually when the car hits the first bump, your, your shock absorbers will be out of phase, the bouncing of your car will be out of phase with the bumps in the road, so actually you won't keep hitting them at the same time, so your car won't be going up at the same time as it's hitting the next bump, which is what's happening. And so when you're out of phase with the bumps, then actually the, all of the bumping goes away. The downside is it's more dangerous to drive faster, but it does work. So if you get really frustrated and it's mm. safe to do so, you can go a little bit faster and put your bouncing out of phase with the bumps in the road and you'll have a smoother journey. Thanks for asking the question, Anton. Uh, shall we go to Dirk in Edenvale? Yes, hi. Um, I just wanted to ask the Hutchinson effect. Um, if that is true, and if it is true, did they use it to bring down the Twin Towers? I have no idea what the Hutchinson effect is. Um, can you tell me what it is? Well, the claim is that the Hutchinson effect is basically um, they're using uh, radio waves to to bend metal and melt metal and things like that. Hmm. I, I've not come across this. Um, I'll have to, to go away and read a bit about it. Or perhaps you could send me a reference, please, Doug, because I've not come across this this idea. Um, my understanding and the, the sort of post-mortem that went on of what happened mechanically with the Twin Towers was that these are steel-framed buildings, and what you have is a a steel cradle around the building, which is transferring all of the load down the building in a certain way. And when you heat up the steel... When the planes flew in, they were full of fuel, they created an inferno. This weakened the steel, and it meant that the steel couldn't transfer the load the right way and deformed. And once you had one floor deformed, it then caused a catastrophic failure through the building because there was a series of collapses of each of the floors in turn, which acted like a hammer and effectively just rammed the building down into the ground because as the load transferred down the building under this intense heat and a successively increasing uh, load of, of shocks... It just collapsed on itself. But, uh, you know, if anyone's got any other uh, information, then please do send it and I'll take a look. Mm -hmm. Hilton, in Fer Good morning, Hilton. Good morning. I just want to know how are aircraft 
steered while taxiing on the ground? Because they obviously don't have steering wheels and stuff. How do they steer the aircraft? Uh, when they're going very slowly, then, well, th when the aircraft is first deployed onto the runway, there is actually a tractor which pulls it along and manoeuvres it uh, so that it can reverse. Uh, once it's actually going along under its own steam, or rather jet power, then the wheels are steerable because the front wheel can turn, and so there's, there's steering that way. The pilot can also apply an asymmetric force on the aeroplane by increasing the output from one engine compared with the other. Mm -hmm. And you can do this in a boat. If you've got a boat with two propellers on it, you can actually turn a boat round without the rudder. If you put one engine going forwards and one engine going backwards, you actually get uh, asymmetric force on the boat. And if the boat isn't too long, then it will actually turn round um, in quite a nice circle that way. The plane can do the same. So if you revved up the engine on the starboard wing and backed off the engine on the port wing a bit, there'd be, a, there'd be an asymmetry in the forces felt by the aeroplane. So it would twist a bit. Once it's moving along, then you can, you can still do that, you can still steer with wheels a bit, but also you can start to apply a, a little bit of rudder, and this, what this does is to deviate the airstream running down the side of the aeroplane, pushing the air in one direction, and if you push the air in one direction, the air pushes back on you and pushes you in the opposite direction. So if you were to twist the rudder so that it, it acted uh, and added more resistance on the back of the plane on, say, the starboard side, you're pushing the air to the to the starboard side it's going to cause the back of the plane to swing to to port and so that's going to have a, a twisting effect and that will steer the plane as well so the pilots are doing mm. all of these things until they're airborne and once they're airborne of course then then you can use the fact that you've got engines which can steer the plane and again you can affect the wind resistance running over the wings and uh, and the back of the plane the rudder and this can can all be used to guide the plane once it's airborne Thanks, Hilton. Temba in Johannesburg. Good morning to you. Hi, hi, ready? Yes. How's it, ready? Good. Like, um, uh, I just want to find out in an instant where one's leg has been amputated and you find that uh, the person now itches on the very amputated uh, part of the leg. Oh, is that from experience, Temba? No, or something no. You've about? <laughs> no, just uh, inquisitive. Oh, okay. Chris. Hi, Temba. You've hit um, onto a very important phenomenon, which is what's called phantom limb pain. Hmm. And it was first described in people who went to war and were hit by cannonballs, musket balls, and more latterly things like landmines and improvised roadside explosive devices are, are the common uh, culprit. But anyone who has to undergo an amputation and loses a part of their body often describes this phenomenon, not just of itching, but sometimes pain. And they will say that even though they know that the part of their body is missing, they can still feel it. Their brain hasn't quite twigged onto the fact that it isn't there. And they develop these really distracting and sometimes awful symptoms of pain, itching and tingling sensations in this missing limb. Mm -hmm. The reason that this happens uh, is that the brain has a representation of the whole body in a certain part of the brain and that representation forms a mini map of the body uh, in your sensory cortex which is a part of the brain corresponding to how we feel things also a motor region so you've got a map of the, of the body in, in your motor region and when you want to move a part of the body the relevant nerve cells corresponding to that body part in that map in the brain light up and they become active and signals are then sent down via the spinal cord to move muscles in that part of the body now when the brain 
can't hear a signal coming back from the missing body part, it assumes that uh, it, it must be not listening hard enough. And so the brain turns up the signal, a bit like you turning up the radio when you can't hear it well enough, and you get more static. Well, the brain turns up the signal corresponding to the missing body part to listen harder, and the static goes up, and that static can then cause... Uh, unwanted signals that don't really exist but the brain tries to make sense of them and interprets them in a range of ways and it's just noise that it's interpreting as things like pain or things like itching mm. and they can also then be reflected onto the motor areas and cause the muscles that don't exist anymore to become active and the brain thinks that these non-existent muscles are very very active and it therefore thinks it must have cramp and this is then interpreted as pain as well and there are various tricks to deal with this and one of them is to use a, a rubber hand illusion what you do is you t if someone's lost say their arm you can put the surviving hand in a box which the subject can see and you make a mirror image reflection of that hand so it looks to the person looking into the box like their missing hand is restored and then what they're able to do is to practice relaxing their intact hand which also causes the reflection which is what they're seeing as their missing hand also relaxing and mirror neurons in the brain transfer the visual stimulus of seeing the hand relaxing onto the motor areas and the sensory areas and so the brain then says oh yes that hand must be relaxing and it restores the missing signal so the brain then uh, tones down or tones down the sensations that were making it uh, making those unpleasant feelings before mm -hmm. and it does work quite well i have a question here do cooling towers at power stations form clouds and are they significant to local weather an sms from rob they do form clouds. In the grand scheme of things, the amount of steam that a cooling tower is making is relatively small compared to the amount of uh, water in a giant storm cloud. There are literally tons and tons and tons of water in a giant storm cloud. Uh, there are not tons and tons and tons of water over a power station, but nonetheless, it is producing large volumes of steam, and they do go up into the air, and on a still day, on a very, very windy day, you can't see this so much, but on a stillish day, there is enough... Uh, steam coming out to form its own little mini clouds whether or not this is going to influence weather well it's a slightly subtle point but th the fact is that the power station itself is going to influence the weather it, the uh, power station is presumably burning something like gas or oil or coal usually coal at the moment and when the coal burns it produces microparticles which go up the chimney and into the atmosphere and they will actually affect the likelihood of um forming rain clouds because tiny particles encourage the formation of clouds anyway through a process called nucleation and we know for a fact that human activities in cities directly influences the weather uh, it, it's much more likely to rain around a city and down, downwind of a city at weekends unfortunately because as the week goes on people's activities in the city produce lots of dust they produce mm -hmm. lots of pollution they produce lots of heat and this then builds into this lovely perfect storm for the weekend so we've all got the weekend uh -huh. off the weather's been beautiful all week we're all looking forward <laughs> to having a nice day out and it rains because we have we have had a weather altering effect and so there, there is going to be a subtle effect like that too but probably not so much because of the cooling tower more because of what's going up the uh, furnace chimney beggy beggy in midrand hi hi Aridian chris i just want to find out my son is three years old he likes playing with an ipad so he has some songs that are his favorite if you can sing or hum one of the songs, you can navigate straight to it. So I want to find out how does it do this. 
he can't read, he can't write. So he just hears the tune and he just goes online and he knows yes, where to find. Even if, let's say, the songs are filtered by artists or by playlists, he can operate it and go straight to the song and that he wants. Okay. Wow. Uh, I, I didn't quite catch that because the line is a little bit poor. Can Can you just yeah. explain a little he bit more for me? He says that really his deeply? son cannot read or write, but he will hear an adult humming a particular tune, a particular song, and he knows where to go on the iPad uh, or online and find that exact same song. And sometimes these songs are arranged uh, by genre, artist, whatever, but his son <laughs> is able to find it. And he can't read or and children, write. Um, yes, children can't, can't necessarily read and write, but they can learn incredibly fast. If you think how quickly we all learn our first language, or even our first and second language when our parents chat to us when we're little. And no, no one needs a teacher as a baby to learn to become extremely accomplished at a language. And a baby's brain is like a sponge. And while they may not be able to read and write, they're very good at pattern recognition. That's how we learn. We, we spot patterns and recurrences. Music is a pattern, a pattern of musical notes. And so most, most babies are tuned into sounds like there's no tomorrow because that's how they're learning to speak. So they have a very good memory and a very good pattern recognizer for musical sounds. So that bit we can solve. In terms of navigating on the iPad, well, that's very visually driven. Babies are very good at spotting. They love colours. They love shapes and coloured shapes. And they have a good memory for that, which is, again, how they make sense of the world around them. And so they very quickly spot that this piece of music goes with this particular sequence of movements. Uh, If I press this, touch that and do ever. So they're learning a sequence. They're not necessarily having to read things um, to decode where do I go for this, this and this. They've remembered the sequence they have to press in order to get to that piece of music. So it's it's all about memory. And the one thing that little people and growing little brains are really good at is having an amazing memory. So this is all brute force memory. By the time we get old and atrophied and have a sclerosed brain like mm-hmm. ours, then actually we rely on props to help us. And when, when we are older, we couldn't possibly remember all those sequences of pressing this, this, this and this in order to find that song. We have shortcuts i.e. we have writing, which reminds ah. us what to press. And so we're cheating by, by using reading. Uh, the, the kiddies do it by brute force memory because they can. Aren't they lucky? Oh, yes, yes, they are. Roger in North Riding, hi. Hi there. Um, um, I saw on Sky News a couple of years ago that they were administering uh, insulin for a diabetic orally with a spray. Uh, do you know any, any more about that? Hello. Um, The answer is, Roger, that this is a big frustration and has been a big frustration for many, many years because people who have diabetes, or type 1 diabetes at least, absolutely need insulin, and if it's not provided, then it can have catastrophic and sometimes lethal consequences. The problem is that insulin is a small hormone, and it's a protein. And protein, just like your Sunday roast and egg white, as soon as you eat it, your gut is very, very well set up to break it down. And so trying to make a form of insulin which can survive the acid attack in the stomach and then digestive juices and be absorbed and still remain alive to go into the bloodstream and then influence the blood sugar so that a diabetic person doesn't have to inject themselves with insulin, which is why they have to inject it, because it's not able to be taken in through the mouth. Um, That's a big, big priority. And people are trying to work on forms of insulin that are stable and can survive that transit through the gut. 
they haven't made it yet. Uh, so at the moment, a lot of work is being focused on insulin pumps. What I mean by that is devices which can be worn under clothing and they're shrinking all the time, or they may even make one before long that can be put inside the body. And this uh, continuously measures the level of sugar in body fluids and injects a tiny amount of insulin which controls the sugar moment to moment. And this gives much better control of a person's blood sugar rather than at the moment. If you do what currently the gold standard in, in diabetic management is, people will prick their finger, take some blood, measure their blood sugar, work out how much insulin they think they need, and then they inject themselves and they make that do for a few hours and then they do it again. Mm. And it means that you can get quite big departures in blood sugar going quite high or quite low. And, and this is, we think, less good for you than if you can keep the blood sugar in a tightly controlled uh, band in your body and that's what having these implants can do there's not yet a decent uh, orally active form of insulin i'm afraid thank you very much roger and you chris we'll chat to you again next week thank you looking forward to it already Ta-ta. thanks really bye bye thinking about your next career move in research and development then it's time to make your move to the uk the nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.